0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, "The Triumph of the Lamb," today in our continuing study of the Book of Revelation, and today in chapter three, verses fourteen to twenty-two. So let's join Dr. Newfeld with his message entitled "The Useless Church."
1: I'll bet that if you remember only one of the seven churches of Revelation, it's probably the church of Laodicea. See, there is little doubt that this is the worst of the bunch. This church has been remembered for 2,000 years as the church that Jesus said he would spit out of his mouth. But did you also know that this church, before it received this letter, would have been shocked to think it would always be remembered in such negative terms? The church would have thought of itself is rich and not a needy church, but a church that God could use. And did you also know that in the message of Jesus to this church, he tells them that they're among those whom he loves. And so even while this church is spoken of in entirely negative terms, so much so that Jesus commends them for nothing, he still tells them he loves them, and he offers them a promise that if they repent, they're going to conquer. Think of a doctor's diagnosis. He says you've got cancer or you've got heart disease or you've got something. That diagnosis can indeed be frightening. But there can be no healing unless the patient and his doctor face the disease. You can't heal unless you know the illness. And so before Jesus promises the church of Laodicea a cure, he demands that they come to terms with what's wrong. We've been studying the seven churches of Revelation, and today we're going to look at the last of them, the Church of Laodicea. Let's read our passage. And to the angel of the Church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Laodicea was located at a place where three important ancient roads converged. Because of its accessibility, it became a very important city for banking and for industry. The city was famous for beautiful black woolen cloth used in both clothing and in carpets. It also housed a very famous medical center and had developed something called Phrygian powder, which was used in manufacture of eye salve. You know, because of all these things, the city had become extremely prosperous. Indeed, just like many cities around it, it was located in an earthquake zone. And when other cities were damaged by earthquakes, the Roman government provided aid, but Laodicea required no such aid. The resources of that city were such that they didn't need a thing. Now, the church in Laodicea was probably founded by a man named Epaphras, When the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the neighboring church in the city of Colossae, he says in chapter 1 and verse 7 that they learned the truth from Epaphras, our fellow servant. And in Colossians 4, verses 12 to 13, Paul adds, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So it would seem that Epaphras, Paul's partner in the gospel, planted three churches, one in Colossae, one in Laodicea, and one in Hierapolis, cities that were in close proximity to each other, and what was then known as the Lycus Valley. See, these three churches no doubt interacted with each other, and I'm, I'm going to just in a little while talk about the importance of that connection. Now, when we read Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea, we find no mention of persecution as there was in other cities. See, in many ways, I would imagine this church was very much like the church in Sardis. They were not active in evangelism and so never caught the attention of those who hated the gospel. And in this way, they remained safe and also— where Jesus had observed that there were some in Sardis who had not stained their garments, that was not the case in Laodicea. That would mean that within the church of Sardis, there was a nucleus that had remained faithful, but Laodicea had no faithful remnant at all. The church of Laodicea had no redeeming qualities. They represent self-sufficient, nominal, complacent Christianity. This is as bad as a church can get. And so, how would Jesus begin by introducing himself to this church? Well, he does so in two ways. First, notice he identifies himself as the amen. Now, that might not be a clue to many of us. I mean, amen, for some of us, is simply the word that we use when we're finishing our prayers. Uh, For others, it's a word that we use when we're in agreement. That is, when, when someone says something that we really agree with, we say amen. It's like saying yes, or that's what I really passionately believe as well. But did you know that in Isaiah 65, verse 15, God himself calls himself the Amen? Now, what can that mean? Now, the ESV translates that as the God of truth. The idea in Isaiah is not that God is the true God, but rather that he is the faithful God. Now, notice, therefore, that after Jesus introduces himself as the Amen, he adds that he is the faithful and true witness. And later on in Revelation 19, verse 11, when Jesus returns in his second coming, he's pictured on a white horse, and he's called faithful and true. And the meaning is, he does what he says he's going to do. Indeed, after calling himself faithful and true, John adds that in righteousness he judges and makes war. The faithful and the true one is the righteous one who judges the nations. He also judges his church. And so, behind this description of Jesus is the subtle statement that if a church violates Christ's intention for it, the faithful and true one remains faithful in judging that church. Now, that's to be taken seriously. Now, second, Jesus adds that he is the beginning of God's creation, and the word beginning in this context could also be translated as the source, as in, he's the source of God's creation. He's the one from whom all things exist. I think what Jesus communicates is a stern word to this complacent church. I speak faithfully, and whatever I speak comes into being. So, faithless church, you're going to want to pay attention. And now with those opening words, Jesus launches into his rebuke. I know your works, he says. You know, those are curious words. When Jesus told the Ephesian church, I know your works, he highlighted their toil and patient endurance. I know your works meant that he had taken note of those things that they had done in obedience to and in honor of him. When he said that to the church in Thyatira, he meant their love and faith and service and faithful endurance. To the church in Philadelphia, he meant that they had not denied his name in spite of persecution. I know your works is usually a prologue to a word of commendation. Anything that they have done in the name of Jesus is noticed and praised by their master. But as Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis and here to the church in Laodicea, I know your works is actually a prologue to condemnation. Why? Because the things that these churches have done are displeasing to Jesus, and from that, we are to assume that simply doing things, even in Jesus' name, doesn't necessarily mean we're pleasing him. See, many a church has been filled with activity, constantly doing projects, and all the while, Christ is displeased. Unless we learn to respond to Christ as Lord, doing the works that he wants us to do, well, we're rebels. And so, when churches are active— They're called upon to answer a key question. Is this what Christ has called us to do, or was this our idea? I mean, after all, He is the Lord of His church. And how often is this the case that we think it's our church? See, we appoint our leaders after our wish is not His. We engage in projects in which we have not searched the Scripture to find out what He wants. We preach to the felt needs of people to even gain a crowd without reflecting on what Christ is saying. In short, it's so easy to make the church into an institution that pleases us and not Him. What a shock it will be for churches to hear that their Lord has not been pleased with any of their activities. I
0: know your works. This month we're broadcasting volume one of Dr. Neufeld's newest series, The Triumph of the Lamb, A Study in Revelation. This is the first of four volumes to be broadcast over the next several months, and each time we want to offer you the newest volume at a very special price. So, for the month of March, volume one of The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in Revelation on CD, is available for only $10. This 15 message volume covers Revelations chapter 1 to 5, including an in depth study of the seven churches. Discover the book of Revelation like never before. And please remember all our Bible teaching programs and resources are possible only because of your generosity. So consider an important ministry gift this month. Call us to order the Triumph of the Lamb or to offer a ministry donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
1: So what was the problem in Laodicea? According to Revelation 3.16, the church was lukewarm. They were neither cold nor hot. Now, to some of us, that might sound somewhat strange. I mean, hot, well, that would mean passionate about the gospel of Jesus. And cold, well, that would mean a rejection of the gospel of Jesus or a a coldness to the gospel. That doesn't seem to make sense. See, when Jesus said, I would that you would be either cold or hot, it would make no sense to have Jesus say, I would that you were cold rejecting me in the gospel rather than lukewarm. I mean, surely that's not what he means. How could he prefer a rejection of the gospel? See, in order to understand Jesus' words, we do well to understand what his words would have meant to the Christians in Laodicea. We do know that the church in Laodicea would have had a closeness to the churches in both Hierapolis and Colossae, as these three cities were close to each other and had been planted by the same man, that is, Epaphras. And as we study those other cities, we, we would note that Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, which drew all manner of people to its spas and healing waters. See, in contrast, the city of Colossae was well known for its cold water, excellent for drinking, but in Laodicea, the water supply for the city was drawn from some distance and it arrived lukewarm. And it was really rather horrible water, the kind that you'd want to spit out. And so it seems that hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is of no use whatsoever. And I think that's the point. The church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, was of no use to Jesus. It was the useless church, which served no function in the kingdom at all. But what can that mean in practical terms? Now, if you look forward to verse 17, it becomes clear. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, it's it's hard to tell if by rich, Jesus means actual, literal riches— or perhaps the less literal spiritual riches, but but in either case, the church is self-sufficient. They did not need Jesus. See, I remember once hearing of a brother from a very poor country expressing astonishment at the very large and prosperous North American churches. He was shown one building. And it included a beautiful sound system and seating and lights and staff and programs. I mean, the budget, the scientific ways in which they identified needs in their community and then responded, resulting in growth. And he said, wow, I never knew you could do so much without God. See, indeed, there are all manner of churches who have never known the desperation of coming to Jesus for help and and having nothing except what Christ in His grace supplies. But unless we acknowledge our helpless dependency on Christ, unless prayer drives us forward, well, we're the lukewarm church. We are of no use to Jesus until we are no good without Jesus. We're useless when we think that we have resources that we can count on. And that's why the church was shocked to hear Jesus say, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are the words that express absolute poverty. If you meet someone like that, you're going to find them living on the streets. They're not only unemployed, they're unemployable. They have no prospects for the future. So when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he was not implying that there really were people who were rich in spirit. What he actually had in mind was, blessed are those who realize that they are poor in spirit, as opposed to those who are ignorant of their spiritual poverty. See, it's the difference between being spiritually proud, like the Pharisee, or spiritually desperate, like the publican. And so let's learn the lesson. The wealthier we think we are, the more spiritually bankrupt we actually are. The more we're aware of our desperate need of Jesus at each point in our lives, the wealthier we are and the more useful we become to our Lord's service. Now to the cure. Verse 18 says, "...I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become rich." Immediately, the Christians in Laodicea would think of their banking industry and the inherent wealth in their city. And their minds might have been taken up in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And that was the key for Laodicea. They needed to buy gold from Jesus without money. He offered them a gift, but they must buy it from him, meaning that they must come to him and request his wealth, and in the process, they must reject their own. So let me ask you a question. What gives you genuine joy and hope? The thought of having more money or the thought of having more of Jesus? The thought of having enough investments or having the funds to buy that thing that you so wanted or the thought of the grace that has been given to you so that you can walk closely with God and invest all that you have in his kingdom. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And with that, Jesus adds more counsel. I counsel you to buy from me white garments to clothe yourselves. Now remember, we had said that the city of Laodicea was famous for its black wool. And here Jesus contrasts the best clothing that Laodicea has to offer With his clothing of righteousness. And then I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes. And again, we notice that the city of Laodicea was well known for its medicinal salve for the eyes, and yet Jesus was telling the church that they had fooled themselves. They thought they could see. And all the salve in in Laodicea could not cure their spiritual blindness. I mean, my goodness, how blind they must have been to live for the present world that was passing away and not see the eternal kingdom that had awaited the faithful. And so we come to verse 19. Those whom I love, I discipline. You know, we might say those whom Jesus loves, he rebukes for their blind spiritual poverty. Those whom he loves, he confronts them in their sins and demands of them that they repent. And with that come words that are often used in an evangelistic campaign, verses 20, which reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, there's nothing wrong with using Revelation 3.20 and in in calling the unsaved to repent of their sins and and welcome Jesus as King and Lord of their lives. But technically, this verse is used to call a complacent church to repent. Leon Morris notes that the word used for eating speaks not of a harried lunch. Instead, the word suggests the meal of the day, a meal that was a leisurely affair, a meal that would include rich fellowship where where people would share their lives with each other. Indeed, Jesus is inviting the church to stop their self-sufficient ways and to sit down with him and take the time and enter deeply into fellowship with their master. And with that comes the promise, the one who conquers will sit with me on my throne. Again, Jesus returns to the theme of ruling and reigning with him. And as we come to the end of Jesus' message to the seven churches, we notice that in each case, he ends with the words, He who has ears, let him hear. If you're able to listen, then then do. If you're able to see the significance of my message to the churches, then look hard at what you see. Consider, which is better, having everything in this life but nothing in eternity— or in this life, bearing the cross of suffering and rejection of the world, and with that, having everything in eternity. Where would you like to invest your life? If you have ears and are capable of hearing, then make your choice. Invest everything you have in the life to come and utterly despise investing in this present evil age. Do you have ears? Do you have eyes? What is fascinating to me is that all seven churches are incredibly relevant to us today. The issues faced by the seven churches in Asia are the very same issues we face. Will we care for doctrinal purity? Will we be loving? Will we be living for the sake of the gospel, to gladly give up all things in this life? Would we give up our very lives? Will be faithful to the call of evangelism? Will we persevere in the face of opposition? Will we become complacent and fall in love with this world and abandon our call, or will we find Jesus and his gospel and his eternal promises to be all that we long for? That's the battle of the ages. In the end of this age, when when Antichrist reigns, this battle will intensify so that all who belong to Christ will openly declare whether they truly belong to him or whether it has all been a pretense. If anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
0: John, I've learned so much from these uh, these messages on the seven churches. And and you know what? I have to admit that some of my thinking was wrong. I took some things for granted that maybe I shouldn't have, I uh, like the cold and hot. I think that was an interesting insight today. But, you know, as I was listening to it all, I have to ask you, does there seem to be a correlation between the churches that were struggling and those that were very successful and persecution? I mean, we see it in our world today, I think, where the church is most persecuted seems they're doing the most for the kingdom.
1: Yeah, that's uh, sometimes the case. It's not always the case because you'll remember in one of the churches, they had indeed suffered for the cause of the gospel and still they had gotten caught up in some of the sexual promiscuity of the day. Uh, I think one thing we can say, however, those churches that were faithfully proclaiming the gospel were the churches that were most likely to be persecuted. So I, I'm going to say I don't think it's the other way around, Ben. I, I don't think that persecution produces purity, but I think purity produces evangelism, and evangelism invites reaction. I think that's what I see in, the, in, the, in, this, in these seven churches.
0: And I think that's a real, it's a real challenge for us today, isn't it? When we, when we live in a tolerant society and therefore we're, we're more reluctant, I think, to really tell people about Jesus and confront them about the truths of the gospel—
1: Yeah, we've got to decide, each one of us and all of our churches, are we going to be a soldier of the cross? Are we going to bear his name to this world?
0: What a great message. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Beginning March 6th, we'll be introducing a new exciting video-based ministry program called Truth and Life Today. Truth and Life Today is a new venture designed to give Dr. Newfeld the opportunity to speak directly to the many Bible and Christian life questions we receive from our listeners every day. Now you'll get the chance to hear and see Dr. Newfeld. Answer your questions. Truth and Life Today will be released every Monday at TruthandlifeToday.com. There you'll also have the opportunity to send in your questions to Dr. Newfeld for a future episode. So make sure to join us every Monday or check out any of our previously broadcast episodes at any time, all at TruthandLifeToday.com. And to receive more information about all the Bible teaching resources, events, and activities taking place for Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.